0: Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is the extended supply chain of the future with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP
1: Welcome, 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 and if you want to run with the game changers, I promise you are in the right place. Welcome to Extended Supply Chain of the Future. Let's get started. The buzz on the street, well, it's a quote I found from Pat Riley. Pat is an American professional basketball executive. He was NBA coach of the year three times, head coach of the Lakers, the New York Knicks, Knicks and the Heat, big time. He knows what leadership is all about, and Pat Riley said, and I quote, excellence is the gradual result of always striving to do better. Let me just let that sink in for a second. So we're talking supply chain. What does this have to do with us? Well, Driving operational excellence in your company needs to be an ongoing, evolving mission. Aha! Uh-huh. gradual, you're going to get there. But how do you do it? Well, it's kind of simple if you think about it. You need to make better informed, timely decisions based on insights from accurate and timely analytics. I know that packs a mouthful of interesting information, but it's true. you got to have the right and on-time analytics that will let you do it smarter and better and more efficiently and more cost-effectively. So as the Internet of Things revolution, you know, all those sensors around us spawn so many smart sensors, more devices are gathering a flood of information and data. How can your company benefit from all of this information coming at you? Well, we have one thing to suggest, establish an intelligent analytics strategy. What am I talking about? We have a panel of three experts who are going to help us figure this out. In just a moment, I'll be introducing you to Adam Zeckel at EY, John Sullivan at SAP, and Tony Hahn. On at SAP and we'll tell you their titles in a minute. So let's circle around the table to Adam Zeckel. And Adam is is the Senior Manager in the Advisory Services Practices at Ernst & Young LLP. That's EY. And here is a quote that Adam sent me to start off the show. He says, Start by doing what's necessary Then do what's possible, and suddenly you are doing the impossible. And the quote is from Francis of Assisi, also known as St. Francis of Assisi, uh, informally named Francisco. He was an Italian Roman Catholic friar and preacher who lived from, my goodness, 1182 to 1226. Adam Zeckel, welcome to Game Changers. How are you?
2: I'm well. Thank you, Bonnie. Yeah, so I I really like this quote, um, especially as it relates to some of these big data analytics projects. Uh, We work with a lot of companies that uh, see the possibilities and using data to really drive business processes across the supply chain. Um, But some of those big ideas seem completely unobtainable because we're saddled with the baggage of everything that's happened up to this point, uh, both from a business process perspective as well as technology. And as we look at physics, you know that any object Uh, that's at rest, will remain at rest without Mm -hmm. some additional outside force. And that's why uh, when we start on these programs, it's really important to find that one use case that start small, think big attitude to say, this will really add value. I know it's achievable. And we do that and that starts to create the pull through of additional use cases. And before we know it, We're using business or we're using data to really drive our business processes. And we never thought that would be possible before we started.
1: Very interesting. Do you agree, Adam? Thank you. Great quote. Do you agree with my quote from Pat Riley as well, that excellence is a gradual result of always striving to do better? You have to start somewhere and just keep at it. And Adam, do you remember what we were, I was told as a child, good, better, best, never let it rest until the good is better and the better is best. Do you remember that?
2: Yeah, and I think that's in the same vein, right? Um, we want to, we have to start somewhere. We have to get moving. If we don't, we're going to fall behind.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Adam. Pleasure to have you on the show. And I'm going to now introduce our second panelist, John Sullivan, is the Director of Innovation in the North America Analytics Center of Excellence at SAP. And let me circle back to John's quote. John has sent us a quote from Orison Swett Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N. Let me just give a little bit of background here. Marden, Dr. Marden actually, lived from 1848 to 1924. An American inspirational author who wrote about achieving success in life, and in fact, he believed so much in it that he founded a magazine called Success, all in capital letters, in 1897. And he published his first book, Pushing to the Front, in 1894, which became an instant bestseller. And get this, he later published 50 or more books and booklets, averaging two titles a year. Very interesting short story here, John. Let me, please indulge me for a second. He was involved in some kind of a hotel fire. He ran out in his... Pajama's basically narrow escape death and 5000 pages of the manuscript of his book went up in smoke in the fire. What did he do? To himself up, ran down the street, bought a notebook and started re- a 25 cent notebook and started rewriting the whole thing from memory. That's a guy who was motivated, I would say. Here is the quote that John Sullivan has selected from Dr. Orison Sweat Martin. What keeps so many people back is simply unwillingness to pay the price, to make the exertion, the effort to sacrifice their ease and comfort. John Sullivan, welcome to Game Changers. How are you?
3: I'm very well, Bonnie. Thanks so much. You know, I, there's actually the, the rest of the story that you just started right there. It actually begins out whereby uh, he wrote his book, and he took it to all these uh, book publishers in Chicago, and, and uh, the quote that came out that resonated in his head is said, if you, if you go back into that time, that was, this is was a severe depression back in the, 18, uh, in the 1890s, and the quote he got from the publishers was, why would anybody buy your book when they can't even buy bread? And he went out and, and published this book, and it went around the world seven times in republication and just served as an inspiration for people to, to get up and do things. That's what we have to do today. I mean, you know, many of us uh, travel and we go to the airports, and, you know, when I go to the airport, I, I see, like, Us magazines and People magazines laying down, and, and I don't read those, and, but many people do, and that's something we really need to address in, in the things that we do in innovation is that we need to see how other people think and address their needs. I mean, we look at the generational shift shifts and changes. That's the key that uh, it's not what we think is the market, it's what the market knows of the market and we have to go uncover that and peel the onion back and find the find the true the meat of what we're trying to go after.
1: Very well put. I didn't know the rest of the story, but I know that this is a man who obviously embraced success. He had the energy, and he did, obviously, John. He didn't mind giving up what he called ease and comfort. I think losing everything in a fire is certainly giving up ease and comfort. But, you know, John, a lot of people complain, and they moan. Look at me. Look what happened. Do you see companies today, especially from the supply chain perspective, do you see companies that are bemoaning the way the world is digitally transforming, the way perhaps newcomers in certain industries are bypassing established players that things are getting disrupted and uncomfortable do you see anybody moaning about that or is everybody jumping on the we got to do better bandwagon john what's the reality check here
3: yeah, the reality is that we see a lot of people bemoaning and doing all the gnashing of teeth, if you will, and, uh, we see a lot of those disappearing. You know, we all know the, the statistics of people who uh, won't be in the Fortune 500 in another five to six years because they're refusing to accept these things. They're refusing to, to, uh, to answer the call and to, and to meet the challenge.
1: Thank you very much, John. I really appreciate the the second part to the backstory. I, I fit as much into my notes about Martin as I could, and I was absolutely fascinated. I wonder what he would be doing if he was here today in the digital age with publishing. You can just basically create a Word document, slap a cover on it, and publish a book, what, in an hour and a half, John? He would Absolutely. be probably 20 twenty titles a year. He would be the, the the Martin Library. Anyway, thank you very much for the great quote. And now I'd like to introduce our third panelist. He is Tony Hahn, H-A-N, if you want to follow him, Senior Director in the SAP Center of Excellence, focused on what else? Supply chain, manufacturing, and IOT. All the hot buttons we're pushing today. Tony has sent me a quote that a lot of people say. I had to go do a little digging on this one, Tony, to find the source of the quote. It's from somebody named Grady Booch, B-O-O-C-H. He's alive and well. born in 1955, an American software engineer who is best known for developing, if you're a programmer, the UML, that's Unified Modeling Language, along with Ivar Jacobson and James Rumbaugh. He's recognized internationally for his innovative work in software architecture, engineering, and collaborative development environments. Interestingly enough, he got his B.A. from the U.S. Air Force Academy and then a master's from University of California, Santa Barbara. So here is the quote, very catchy, and Tony's going to tell us why he picked it for today. The quote is, a fool with a tool is still a fool. Excuse me. Tony Hahn, welcome to Game Changers. How are you, Tony?
4: Hey, doing great. Thanks, Bonnie. And uh, thanks for the background. I actually did not know the, uh, the lineage or the entomology of that, so... I think it's actually kind of a comical one. It's meant to inject a certain amount of lighthearted humor, but the reality is I've used it in the past. I did not know the uh, history behind that, but it rings true for a number of reasons. I think there are definitely some more, uh, many more altruistic quotes or uh, inspirational epiphanies, as we call them, that we could have selected. But the one that I like about this one, the reason why I've used this in the past is because all too often, you know, we try to fix processes that are broken, um, or if we if the process is broken, we, we we tend to want to just automate things for the sake of automation. Mm-hmm. And I think most many times, most of the people that you work with will understand that just automating things for the sake of automation sometimes um, it, it never really makes sense. So you know, sometimes the easiest solutions that are, are not really around automation at all. So you know, give you one example from the lean manufacturing world. Um, In automotive manufacturing, Bonnie, you have this continuous flow of manufacturing. It kind of goes from work center to work center. And way back when they were applying what we call these uh, TPS techniques, which stands for like Toyota Production System, really uh, embellishing upon these lean operations techniques on this auto chassis, um, they wanted to find out that one of the work centers, you had to have uh, bolts attached and they, these components needed to be attached and needed to be tightened before it went to the next work center. If they weren't done, then it'd create a certain amount of rework. You'd have to stop the line and it creates a lot of uh, waste, which is one of the basic tenets against lean manufacturing. Mm-hmm. But instead of trying to automate that process and to check around that, um, you know, how do I verify that this, this work was actually performed, uh, the solution was very simple. Keep the wrench, keep the power tool stored in a bucket of paint, maybe yellow mm-hmm. paint, so that when it came to the receiving work center, they could do a visual scan and see that there was yellow paint on the chassis and say, hey, okay, this, this uh, job was actually performed. So it didn't need a keystrokes, it didn't need a panel, it didn't need a computer screen, mm-hmm. it didn't need an authorization check, it didn't need any kind of automation. It was, again, you know, no automation for a training that was done, just simple visual cues. So that's kind of some of the context behind why I think it might be good.
1: I like that. Very interesting example, Tony. Thank you very much. <laughs> While you were describing you it, I was visualizing it and I was saying, well, I don't need any computer or anything. I don't need any sensors. You're just talking about common sense and using your eyes and using your, your knowledge and noticing something and working around that. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Now I'm going to circle back to Adam Zeckel at EY. And Adam, I'm going to ask you a very personal question, actually two of them. Number one, where are you calling from today? And number two, what's in your cup today, a.k.a. what are you drinking that energizes Adam Zeckel? Or what are you going to drink after the show to celebrate?
2: I am uh, calling from Midtown Manhattan today. And as I usually do most mornings, I have Coke Zero in my cup this morning.
1: Wow. Tell me why. And do you have it cold? Is it over ice? Is it room temperature? We've had guests who, who drink Dr. Pepper at room pe- temperature. We had a regular guest several years ago. So I'm wondering, for breakfast, cold soda? Talk to me.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, you know, in Manhattan, you can't get a fountain soda anywhere anymore. So it's, uh, you know, the, the standard 20-ounce bottle uh, once was cold. Um, I'm not a coffee drinker, so I uh, I like my chemicals to uh, keep me awake.
1: <laughs> okay, true confessions time. I always thought that was the best part of the show. Thank you very much, Adam, and welcome. I'm on Long Island, by the way, so I'm going to lean out the window. I'm I'm not going to fall out. Leaning out the window on the North Shore, and I'm waving to you. Can you see me waving? The curly red hair and the and the the short arm waving at you, Adam.
2: Uh, yeah, that that must be you.
1: That's me. Thank you very much. Okay, welcome to New York. And now let's talk to John Sullivan. John, same questions. Where are you calling from and what's in your cup right now or what are you going to drink later?
3: Yeah, so I am uh, I reside in, in Atlanta, Georgia, the home of Coca-Cola, so I'm drinking Southern coffee, which would be Diet Coke, and uh, that's uh, I only have one a day, so I have to c- kind of cut myself off there, but I do long for the days when you put your money in the machine and slide the bottle out, and when you, you crack open the top, you know, it immediately would freeze. Uh, I still want to go back to that, but uh, I think those days are long gone.
1: Oh, yeah, the times, they are a change, and thank you very much, and let's talk to Tony Hahn. Tony, where are you today, and what's in your cup today?
4: Well, I'm calling from the uh, Bay Area of California out here on the West Coast. It's a little bit early, but um, I start my day every day pretty much with uh, leaded coffee. I usually get the uh, Kona blend of uh, vanilla, and it kind of it, it does two things. One is really it kind of starts the day with vigor. I kind of need that, uh, but at the same time, you get this... Vanilla tinges that kind of gives you some harmonious feeling of being on vacation. (laughs) So I kind of combine (laughs) the two. And after one cup, I go to unleaded coffee because I only need one.
1: I'm with you, actually. Uh the three of you don't know me very well other than our prep call a week or two ago, but they don't let me have caffeine or lead as you put it, Tony, on radio show days. So all I'm all I'm allowed to have as she slows down her speech and calms down, all I'm allowed to have is a cool, clear cup of cool, clear water and I've got a an orange straw in my glass of water today. It is filtered water, thank you, Britta. Uh and it's orange because the leaves are just barely starting to turn here on Long Island, somewhere Beautiful. Well, it's October. What today is? Today is the October 18, 2016. Uh, The leaves are starting to turn. I see gorgeous gold leaves on this huge oak tree across the street. Other than that, mostly green, but orange is hoping for, optimistically, a beautiful fall turning of the leaves. So there. So let's talk business here. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. You are listening to Extended Supply Chain of the Future with Game Changers Radio. I believe we have Eileen Honnady Y. listening on the line. Eileen, welcome. I know you're a silent partner here, Eileen. I I think you're already tweeting for us at, uh, let's see, you're using EY underscore SAP. Thank you very much. Anybody who wants to tweet any questions to me and my panel today, just include the hashtag SAPRADIO, that's SAP Radio, in your tweets, and we will keep an eye on the Twitter stream here on our Sprinkler dashboard. So I'm just going to say we're going to take a quick break. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We will be right back in our topic today, your Operational Excellence, Advanced Supply Chain Analytics. Great panel, great conversation. You don't want to miss the rest of us. Michael out.
3: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business
0: Network. Rising customer expectations, complex supply networks, and a focus on your business's bottom line make it more important than ever to bring your extended supply chain into the future. Your extended supply chain is one of the most critical components of your business success. From matching supply to demand with efficient order fulfillment to designing and manufacturing amazing products, hear how you can bring your extended supply chain into the future. Our experts discuss how the extended supply chain of the future is producing dramatic results to businesses worldwide. The extended supply chain of the future with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit SAP.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to the extended supply chain of the future with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to the extended supply chain of the future with Game Changers.
1: And indeed, we are back. We're talking today with Adam Zeckel at EY, John Sullivan at SAP, and Tony Hahn at SAP. And I'm still Bonnie D. Graham. Our topic, a very important one, your operational excellence, Advanced Supply Chain Analytics. Before we start our roundtable, I have to do a shout-out to Rick Imber at SAP, who sponsored this series, and I believe they're going to come back for another 10 episodes in 2017. Yay, Rick. And also, the man who's doing all the heavy lifting on this series, getting together wonderful panels like the one we have today, it's Shane Ellis at SAP. Always a pleasure to work with Shane, and thank you for bringing us Adam, John, and Tony today. Now that the housekeeping is in order, let me go to our first part of the roundtable. Looking at notes, Adam Zeckel at EY sent me, and Adam says the following. A paper written by Nicholas Carr, C-A-R-R, in the Harvard Business Review, asserts that IT doesn't matter because those capabilities lack the scarcity required to create a competitive advantage. I'm going to stop there, Adam, and let you explain. Build it out, and then we will invite John and Tony to comment. Go ahead, Adam.
2: Sure. Uh, essentially, the argument is that, um, you know, with the proliferation of technology and business, uh, circa Y2K, that um, IT was no longer a way for a firm to build a true sustainable competitive advantage. It was readily available. Um, anybody can call up their favorite systems integrator, implement a system, and therefore there's no advantage to be gained. Um, The counter that I would provide to that argument is that the data generated by those systems is not only a true uh, competitive advantage, but it's also sustainable because the firms that are able to properly manage and capture and use the data that is being generated are going to be able to be more nimble. They're going to be able to um, create... The, the whether it's supply chain or another area of the business, they're going to be able to com- create that in-house analytical talent that is not easily replicable and therefore does create that competitive advantage in the marketplace.
1: Thank you, Adam. John Sullivan, what do you think?
3: Yeah, yeah I, I couldn't disagree more with Nicholas, to be honest with you, because I, you know, I was actually at a session years ago uh, uh, w- and, uh, at Carleon University in Ottawa, Canada, and one of the panelists got up there and said, uh, this is actually with with medical-type records. They said, uh, I don't really care if somebody can see my data, but I do care if somebody can change my data. And that's where I really see the key of IT is making sure that they govern uh, that, that, that security requirement so that things stay the way they are, that they are presented in the correct way as they move through different consumers, if you will, of this data. And that's the key of, uh, of, of the, the, uh, what I call the value chain protection part of, of, of the supply chain. How do we make sure that uh, we understand what happened in the past, that we can't rewrite the history that we see so often in, in, in social type norms? Because data has to be, uh, consistent and and consistently uh, applied as we move forward.
1: Very interesting. Thank you, John Tony. Why don't you weigh in on this? We love your POV here.
4: Well, thanks, Bonnie. I think it's um I think it's entirely accurate. so I, I thank Adam for bringing that up. Um, the reality is, um, you know, I, a lot of IT activities tends to get commoditized, and really the ones who are going to um, take advantage of that, to John's point, is really the ones you can say, you know here's the data, but what can I really learn from it? Um, Not only how do I secure it and encapsulate it, but how do I actually distill that into learnings to the point where it actually impacts or influences what I'm going to do in the future? And that basically is the the basis really behind the analytics. And if it motivates a change in behavior or if it motivates different activity, that's really the compelling story behind that. So in and of itself, data is great, but it's, it's getting commoditized to the point that we can extract it, and then figure out ways to leverage it is really the key uh, to really kind of figure out how to get that competitive advantage. So I
3: like that. Thank,
1: Yeah, thank you, Tony. Adam, I'm going to circle back to you. John, do you have anything to say about what Tony added before I go back to Adam? Yeah.
3: You good? The one thing I would say is that we need yeah. to look at those opportunities of what that data is and how we can actually monetize it. Because I think people don't think, uh, you know, with all this data that goes up and is for free and those type of things, companies need to really value that data and how they could actually make it and sell it to, uh, to the market so that they could expand it out and have that more visibility. Just because data is there and it goes outside your company doesn't mean it should be free. There are things that we need to put prices on because uh, that's, that's just uh, that's an asset that companies have that they need to protect.
1: Thank you very much. Adam, I'd love for you to wrap this up. Comments on what your yeah. co-panelist said.
2: Well, I'd like to thank John for, for stealing my thunder on that last point there. <laughs> but uh, the 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 reality is, is that IT is often seen as a cost center, right? And But as John was just saying, if you start to look at data as revenue generating instead of a cost, then that changes the conversation completely. And we talked before about you know, the ability to get projects started and building a business case and how are you going to drive this through your organization, if there's real dollars attached to it, if there's a way to create data as a business or, or as, or as John said, monetizing those data assets, um, there's going to be a lot greater chance for pull through. Um, boards of directors love that kind of stuff. Uh, so I, I think that that's spot on. Thank you very
1: much. Good opening topic. Thank you, Adam. John Sullivan, I'm looking at the notes you sent me before the show. Here's something very provocative, might be an eye-opener for our listeners. You say, the goal of supply chain management is to provide maximum customer service at the lowest cost possible. I think that's a very interesting statement. Why don't you talk to me and expand it, John, and then we'll invite Tony Hahn and Adam Zeckel to chime in.
3: Yeah, you know, but visibility in, in that uh, in that effort of maximizing customer service, because like I said before, we, we do see different uh, consumers of the data, whether they're by age or by uh, economics or by uh, by geography or location of where they are. We need to meet each one of those uh, each one of those consumers at, at that, that, that that need. But in addition to that, we need to challenge the way we we currently think about that. And I'll tell you, um, too often we we, we we just sit back and uh, kind of accept what's said. And nobody really goes out there and puts out what I call uh, new and innovative ideas. And uh, I kind of take that back to the time of when we were children. And, you know, the, 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 what our parents did to us was, you know, don't make me stop this car. We used to always do that, why, because, why, because, all over and over and over again. And we really need to get back to that. And uh, I'll just give an example. I was in a meeting uh, of, of a roundtable-type discussion, and we were talking about uh, supply chain efforts. And uh, one lady actually gets up and says, you know, this is very much like, uh, like my stock portfolio. And, uh, you know, the whole room just kind of shut up because they said, what is this person even talking about? And then she went on to say, you know, if we look at like the the spider uh, funds, the ETF funds, you know, it's all these different companies that are in the same line of business and we invest in all of them and we want them all to succeed where all, you know, all boats rise as the tide goes in. And she said, this is the way we need to look at our production lines in in the supply chain. We want all of them to succeed. And this actually just came a, a different view of how uh, they can leverage, uh, you know, the best people. You know, what makes one line be better than the other is it the amount of training, is it the people mix, does it start on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, is it first, second shift, third shift? You know, those type of things. And when they started looking at it that way, I'll just go ahead and tell you, it represented about a seven to ten percent return on an investment on that for them. And for that company, it was, that was one hundred, that was around one hundred and thirty million euro per year. Just because somebody stood up and said something that nobody else had the guts or the the uh, the desire to put forth and that's really where we need to go to come out here and challenge the status quo and say why don't we look at it from a different position
1: thank you john john i I wish you could be a little more enthusiastic i'm only teasing (laughs) love the energy it comes across so great john you hear me right very very good absolutely absolutely Tony, love love it when we have panelists who are really enthusiastic about the topic, as clearly the three of you are. Tony Hahn, weigh in, please, on what John just introduced, then I'll circle around to Adam as well.
4: Well, I think there's a couple of key concepts that were really, uh, really good to kind of pressure here, if you would, um, the perceptions, um, the different aspects of the supply chain, trying to do things at the lowest cost possible. But with the highest amount of service, conceptually, you know, for the listeners, and when I first got into this like 20 years ago, it's very easy conceptually to say, oh, that just makes sense. It's kind of intuitive the challenge is when we get into the execution and there's so many different silos within a value chain and, you know, not to get too much into the details, but from a point of view of like the manufacturer is very different. If I'm a manufacturer, I want to produce everything within my four walls and do things very effectively and get, um, you know, have the perception that I'm doing the right things and I'm making things and I'm I'm optimizing within the four walls. But then if I'm a logistics provider, so let's say I'm the person in charge of traffic for a company, and in today's world uh, with, with the... You know, with the expectations, there's this compression around expectations, around when I need to have it, when I must have it, when I want it. And so you see people going from two days. Two days is no longer enough from Amazon. Now it's around one day. Um, You know, Walmart and Amazon are kind of battling it out. Now it's no longer, one day is no longer good enough. Now it's like, I've got to have same day. And then it's got to be, I've got to have it within a couple of hours. I've got to have these things delivered. So when, you, when you're when you a company trying to respond to those dynamics, it's very difficult. And so, for example, to continue the, the thought process, a logistics provider, he just wants to move things in bulk because it's very efficient for the for the traffic operator. By bulk, what I mean is I want to make sure there's are not a lot of empty trailers going outbound or I want to make sure that I'm not moving a lot of product in between a lot of my distribution mm-hmm. centers in order to get it and fulfill it within that two-day window or one-day window. And so what happens is sometimes people can optimize within their silo, but it tends to sub-optimize the entire value chain. And so to John's point, You know, if you really want to be that low-cost provider and do it at the highest uh, service levels, it gets very difficult because you need to marry up all these different silos. So, again, conceptually, sounds easy. In this execution, very difficult and very challenging to get everybody on that same page.
1: It sounds like you have to do what, uh, what was it, what Martin said, you have to give up ease and comfort and you have to really go for it. And what did he say? What keeps so many people back is simply unwillingness to pay the price to make the exertion. Sounds like exertion Mm -hmm. is involved here. Adam Zeckel, love to hear your thoughts on this, please.
2: Yeah, I think the only thing I could really add is um, we need to make sure that we're properly defining cost. You know, we've talked a lot about, you know, what some of these investments look like. And and we worked with um, a a company that was, you know, embarking on a big data platform initiative. Um, And the big sticking point was the cost or the perceived cost of of this implementation. Um, But when we really dug into it and spelled out, here's the cost of continuing to do things the way you are today and put that ROI out there, um, it becomes very clear that the you know the ability to uh, provide service at the lowest possible cost does require investment and it does require um, the, the adding capabilities um, it shouldn't all just be considered a, a, a you know cut cost initiative it should be how do I invest so that I am providing that service uh, at you know, a go-forward lower possible cost.
1: Thank you, Adam. John, let me circle back to you since this was your topic. John, I want to ask you a question, and maybe we can go around the table briefly question is, is what we're talking about today breaking news for the audience, for a supply chain professionals, managers in companies around the world? We do have a, a very strong global audience. Is this something that is a surprise to anybody, that you have to look into the supply chain, that you have to have the analytics, that you've got to be ahead of everything, you got to really know where the efficiencies are, and you really have to make the effort to do it? What do you think, John? What do you
3: see? I don't. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody, but I think the the the, the issue is how do you actually get started on these kind of things? And uh, to me, it's like when you look at look at innovation. Uh, you know, everybody talks about like disruptive innovation, and but nobody ever asks, uh, well, what 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 is it, and how do we actually get there? And, and to me, there 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 are three types. You know, there's what I call sustaining innovation, keeping us where they are. There's efficiency innovation, which is what I would say almost 100 percent of the people are doing today. And then there's what the, the lightning in the bottle, which is that disruptive innovation. And, uh, you know, in supply chain, we're all about uh, metrics and, and ratios. You know, everybody knows that little X over Y number. If we're doing sustaining-type innovation, we want to keep X and Y the same, and that's where we want to go. Like, we don't want people to get hurt in, the, in our manufacturing process. That's one of the things we want to you keep know, to a zero, because we know if we have somebody get injured and it's a recordable injury, that, that blows our MBOs out for everybody. Uh, but the efficiency one, where we decrease Y, that's, that's, that's an easy thing for us to, to look at. How do we make that, 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 that number? Grow, if you will, in the ratio, and then uh, uh, that's one we have to, to really address at these levels. And when I look at the the, uh, the comments that are being made here, we're really talking about those types of initiatives. And the hard ones, this disruptive that, that everybody says, you know like flippantly, uh saying how easy it is and that's just lightning in a bottle i mean it's the uh, the uh the uh, invention of the iphone uh, the the, uh, the you know the ipod even from that segment from from our organization uh things like uh, like hana you know it's all these different things that we see here that are uh, the culmination of people seeing what is possible and no being no longer being willing to accept what is
1: Thank you very much. I'd, I'd love to go around the table on that one. Tony, what do you observe? Uh, surprised everybody? A little bit of due diligence? Is it, oh, damn, we better get on on board this right now. It's getting late in the game. What do you see?
4: So I think it's um, a couple of things. And it's, it's easy for us, you know, myself, Adam, John, because we've been living and breathing this for so long. It's easy for us to kind of profess what we've been seeing and what we've been saying. I think it's also careful that if I'm a, if I'm taking in this this show, um, is it really new? Is it is it something innovative to them? I think most of the uh, the people who are probably taking in this and understand this content uh, recognize the the value. They recognize the innovation. One thing that we we can't be too careful or we can't overemphasize is the fact that it also depends on just the organizational maturity to um, enable the change. So. And although it's part and parcel to the dialogue, is something we haven't really landed on, but it's really the change management aspect of it. Um, operational excellence is a huge change management exercise. Supply chain, and engineering and innovation is an absolutely huge amount of lift and shift for some of these organizations. And I think one of the keys to our success is being able to come in from the outside and being able to assess that um uh, maturity, if you will, where are they on the spectrum of of operational maturity to assess? You know, what's really a leap? What's something uh, some baby steps we can do, and what are some measured things that we can do now tactically before we can get them to that strategic aspect of that? And I think most of the companies that w- would kind of uh, agree in the sense that I understand the endpoint. I just need to figure out ways to get there. So it's kind of like that journey. Help me get along this journey because there's some basic blocks and tackling that we need to do uh, before we can actually get to that sizzle, that lightning in a bottle, which, which I really like. Um, a lot of the folks will actually kind of recognize that and have that cognizance around, it. yeah, we really need to get there because that's that competitive advantage that you know, we need to beat our peers to that space. But really, you know, Tony, I'm way back here in the first quartile of operations. I need to figure out ways to optimize things within my house before I can start expanding out a lot that network so um, it's really kind of like an assessment game you know where are they on this mm-hmm. continuum what's their propensity to be able to internalize and, and do this change and uh you know what kind of process sophistication can we really enable with these with these uh, constituents
1: adam what do you think
2: uh yeah and i mean if the question is is anybody surprised i i don't think so i, I mean at least i think most organizations out there have this uh in their in their sights. Um, as, as Tony was mentioning, how far along are they in the continuum? Um, some of the more advanced organizations have this uh, this operational excellence as a culture, right? And I think that that's where uh, a lot of, you know, particularly smaller firms really want to drive to. Um, and, and along those lines, yeah, exactly what Tony was saying around, what's the organizational maturity, the ability to drive that culture change? Um, and building it from within. And, and as I look at it from, you know, purely data and analytics, um, it's about how do I build that in-house talent? How do I make sure that that my people are living and breathing this on a day-to-day basis uh, so that we can actually drive that change so that we can, um, you know, really move towards uh, operating in a more streamlined manner?
1: Thank you very much. Sorry about that before. I'm trying to keep all my people around the table straight here. Thank you. Thank you all for, for, as I like to say, indulging my question. I thought that was important. Uh, Tony Hahn, looking at your notes here, we've already talked about data is only useful when it's put to good use. I think we covered that one. You have a use case from Kaiser Compressor. Do you want to talk about that, Tony?
4: Yeah, you bet. Um, Thanks, Bonnie. So so this company – Sells compressors that you know compress air for certain types of various construction and whatnot. Uh, many many use cases, but uh, I think before I actually get into that, I think let me back up just a little bit. So part of the art of what's possible is being able to look at you know what do I do with this data? How do I monetize that? To the points made earlier, um, and then how can I actually reimagine what my business model may be in the future? So today I might be making. Air compressors. I might be selling them, and mm-hmm. who knows what happens further down the stream um, with uh, the users. But it sure would be great if I knew how these uh, these products were operating out in the field. And you know, with the ubiquity of sensors and the cost coming down so much, and this compression between operational technology and information technology, I can now operate or evaluate how my products are operating out in the field. So that when there is a service problem, um I can, you know, perhaps I can even anticipate it if we have some kind of predictive capabilities around how the um asset is performing. I can also correspond and work with my service providers to say, you know what? This machine has been operating at 120% of rated capacity for an extended period of time. It sure would be great if the next time you go out there, you check on these types of components. And that's a huge service that's being done to the consumer, the actual buyer of the product. So, for example, in the in the case of compressor space, uh, what they did is, like, with this data, they said, you know, we now can understand how our products are operating out in the field for the customers, how they're being used, what kind of um, – signals are being propagated backwards so that we know how they're operating. And then we can actually sell, um, instead of giving them just a product and walking away with a service contract, we say, you know, why don't we just give you a service contract and lease the product to you? Why don't we actually Mm -hmm. figure out ways of providing more value to you as as a customer of our products and say, you know what, lease it from us, we'll just sell you, you know, when you step back away from it, we're effectively selling units of compressed air. And it's not too different. And that's kind of like the reimagination of the business model. Whereas before, we were a maker and purveyor of of uh, products, assets. Now, we are actually providing... The output of what those products do, which is compressed air. So now my business model could be I'm selling compressed air. And you're seeing a lot of other companies in different industries look at that in different perspectives. So, you know, the jet engines that go on an airplane, you know, instead of selling you the jet engine, I'm now selling you hours of uptime. I'm now selling you a certain service level that I can form against. And, it, and it, what it does is it opens up new revenue streams and different relationships with your customers. So that's kind of what I was. Uh, landing on here with the case of story.
1: Thank you very much. Kaiser. Thank you for the pronunciation. Adam Zeckel, you any bet. comments on that case study? You have any use cases you want to chime in with, or just comment on the one Tony shared with us?
2: Um, I think, no, I think it's indicative of, of how a lot of firms are looking at things. Um, mm. we've worked with a distributor who, um, you know, Tony mentioned downstream, um, and the ability to provide that data to your downstream customers. Um, for a long time, it's just been you know a handshake agreement. Um, and now, you know with with all of the extra data points available, um, how do we rethink that arrangement? How do we rethink about um, what's the value in that and and how do we monetize it? How do we how do we change the way we think about, um, it, you know, it's our supply chain, but it's generating data that's incredibly value, valuable to others. Um, and so there's opportunity there. And, and it's about capturing that opportunity, um, being uh, having the foresight uh, and the corporate culture that allows you to, to think it, about things in that way.
1: Thank you. John Sullivan, thoughts? Have another use case for us, or do you want to talk about the one Tony did?
3: I'm going to talk about the one Tony did because it's it's just a prime example of going back in the conversation we talk about the the disruptive piece of innovation, and here it actually is for everybody. In the past, you look at this company; they were looking at. at Parts and their replacement, their upkeep, their maintenance type things is as a component of time and distance. If it goes for this much, uh, you know, three months, six months, like our car, you know, doing oil changes, that sort of thing, or we go 36,000 miles, and that's the way we go in there and, and do these, uh, timed replacements to keep these things up and running. And where they actually went from there, now instead of doing time and distance, they're looking at things called life and health. So they're looking at the life of the unit is what we see by these sensors. We know what good looking, uh, uh, or, or op or maximum operating uh, you know parts look like because we know the sensors give us this type of data does the one that's out in the field resemble this if it does then we don't need to go look at it we don't need to replace it but say it falls you know below the certain you know cutoff point then it falls into the area that hey then now we need to go look at those type of things so we're going to look at the life of this uh, this uh, this part or component that we may have and then then we make a decision based on its current health of how we actually interact and go forward on that and it's not just that that one part is the old family of uh, parts that are inside this component that we're building, and that's what we really can can value in that relationship between. Me, the customer, and the supplier who actually brings that to me, if they're willing to share that data with me so I can actually see how things are working, this, this leads to that continuous regeneration, if you will, of innovation because we see how the customer is using things, and now we can say, hey, let's go and change these types of things to make sure there's a better component, a better price, and it builds that lifetime customer that we all want to uh, attain to.
1: Thank you very much. Let me see... Uh... Tony, you want to comment on what your colleagues on the panel have commented on your example? Great example, by the way.
4: Hey, thanks. Uh, There's not much more to add. I think these guys are spot on, and I think we're all aligned in our thinking is that, again, taking that data and learning what we can do from that to be able to uh, monetize that and create that competitive advantage is the key. You know, whereas before we might have been just one part of the value chain, now we can move upstream and downstream based upon the data that we're getting back from these sensors. And we're now providing more of a service, not only to the end consumers, but also to the buyers, uh, people further upstream, because now I can say, you know what? Some of the pieces that I'm getting on these uh, continuously fail at this percentage rate. So then you start working back upstream to your uh, providers, your suppliers. Say, we need to kind of correct this or work on this together. So again, it allows you to kind of land and expand and start going laterally across the whole value chain. So good opportunity.
1: Thank you very much. You know what? We've got about five minutes left until we go to our predictions lightning round at the end. So, Adam Zeckel, I'm circling back to your notes before the show. Here's one point I would like to drive home to our listeners. We, we may have already hammered it, but I, I'd like to make sure that we bring the point home. Deliver it. Uh, you say, becoming a data-driven organization is more than simply implementing a technology solution for analytics. And I think this goes back to the quote that Tony Hahn shared with us from Grady Booch, a fool with a Tool is still a fool, maybe a faster fool, but a, but still a tool with a fool. So, any, any message you have for our listeners on that, Adam, and then we'll go around the table. You can't just bring in, oh, great, we got analytics, everything's going to be cool, everything's going to be fine. What's what's the back message for our listeners, Adam?
2: Yeah, and, and I wouldn't want to beat up our listeners that are you know from the IT department too much here, but um, <laughs> the, anything that's sponsored uh, in this realm uh, out of IT. Um, has a less likelihood to succeed than something that's coming from the value added parts of the business. Um, when we talked before about starting small, finding that use case, it's about business value and it's about what is the, um, you know, the air compressor story. Um, if, if that's an IT led initiative, then there's no pull through from the business and it never becomes reality. Um, so, and, and that's, that's where, um, you know, when we talk about what being a data-driven organization is about, it's about empowering the users. It's about empowering our business people and our decision makers. It's not just about putting a bunch of data with some pretty graphs on it, right? It it, it has to start mm-hmm. uh, from business value and drive backwards.
1: Okay, thank you. Let's go to John Sullivan. Any thoughts you want to drive home for Honoring IT, but still telling them that it's more than just bringing on board some, some pretty stuff.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I think the, 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 the real key here is getting to what I would call decision analytics. And what I mean by that is, what are the actual levers that when somebody sees this data that's been transformed and been, you know, been put into this certain area, what are the actions, the levers that they can pull to adjust and to, uh, to uh, accommodate those, those types of changes? That's really the, the, the key message here. And, you know, I, I, uh, I love the quote here that, um, you know, the movie we've all seen with Sullenberger uh, uh, landing on the Hudson here. you know, A lot of mm-hmm. people know the first words unless you ever watched the movie, because it didn't really come out here. He actually gets up there and says, my aircraft. Those were the first words he said. So it's when a human actually takes control. Even though that mm-hmm. computer simulation could have done it over and over again, it's the real-time look out the window, being able to make the assessment of what people need, what people want, what people will pay for, and how we can actually uh, uh, make those uh, different changes. So really view this from the levers that you could pull, and that's really the, the driving factor that will take you to places where you can really exceed expectations for for your department and your customers.
1: Thank you very much. It's a human element. And uh, Tony, anything you want to add?
4: Yeah, I like that comment, John. My aircraft, if you think about Mm -hmm. it, it also denotes ownership. Uh, My aircraft, I'm in charge, you know, it it denotes really that ownership and taking it, uh, you know, by the range and this is what we need to do. So um, ownership is absolutely critical. And so, you know, definitely... In the IT organization, the business side, they really have to have a meeting of the minds to say, this is really the need behind the analytics, why we need it. Can you enable this? Uh, if not, what can we do to get better insight further upstream and downstream? So I really think that the ownership should be something that is not uh, understated. Um, again, the collaboration between the two and then just being understanding the, where to extract the most value so we can kind of figure out what are the roadmap that we want to go on, embark upon. So. Good comment.
1: Very good comment. I saw the movie. It was Sully. Is that the one you're talking about? Yes?
4: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Is
1: that was a very... Very powerful movie. I didn't, I was so busy. Every time they said brace, I was so busy hunkering down in my chair in the, in the theater, bracing and crying and crying and crying. It was such a powerful film. And the backstory was also very interesting. Thank you for that, John. Okay. We are officially now in our crystal ball predictions round. So I'm going to circle back to Adam Zeckel at EY. And Adam, take a look in the crystal ball from your vantage point in your career and your expertise and your research at EY and all the things you do there. And uh, take a look. I like the year 2020. You can pick any time from 10 minutes from now on until infinity. What do you see that will change dramatically or significantly if we met again to talk about this topic? How far in the future, and what do you predict, Adam Zeckel? 60 seconds. Predict. I'll give you 90 seconds. We we'll feel in a good mood uh, today. 90 seconds, Adam. No hurry, Adam. Go ahead. Predict, please.
2: I- I don't know how provocative this really is, but um, if you look at a lot of the systems that were put in place um, at, at most major corporations, uh, look at Fortune 500, for example. Um, uh, those systems are 20 plus years old in a lot of cases, um, and with the emergence of technology, you know, if you look at supply chain alone, you know, around RFID, um, uh, you know, predictive analytics for warehouse pathing, um, drones, you know, any of these items. Um, I I see companies that are investing, uh, I think it was uh, John that mentioned it before, who's falling out of the Fortune 500. Um, I I think that that, those investments in that technology to replace uh, business processes that are over 20 years old are going to make the difference between uh, those companies that succeed and those that don't do as well.
1: Thank you very much. Brief and to the point, Mr. John Sullivan at SAP, I can give you a full 90 seconds. Go ahead and predict for me, please, John.
3: Yeah, my prediction is we've got to guard against the, the Kodak moment. And if anybody's under 30 years of age on this call, you probably don't even know what a Kodak moment is. Because <laughs> the, the, this company saw the future, owned all the patents, but didn't uh, actually act on it. And my, my whole key message here is, is that nobody knows what the future is, but you have the ability to actually drive that future. And, uh, you know, and, and you don't have to accept what other people define. I think it's interesting that we see, uh, you know, people talk about, like, the connected car. You know, you're driving down the road, and all of a sudden this, this thing comes up and says, yeah, if you go fill up here, we'll give you a free cup of co- coffee or something like that. Well, you know, in my future, I'm never going to go to a gas station again. I'm never going to get my tires rotated again. I'm never going to get, uh, you know, my oil changed, any of those type of things. My car washed again because when I'm asleep at my work, you know, I want my car, if I even own one, to go take care of all that for me. So we need to really dream what the future will be and then drive to that, that point of excellence.
1: Thank you very much. And Tony Hahn, I saved 90 seconds for you.
4: Hey, thanks, Bonnie. I think with my colleagues on the phone here, that driverless car will actually recommend a Coke product or a Coke Zero to them <laughs> instead of coffee. No, but uh, looking forward in the future, um, I think five years from now, I kind of look backwards too, um, and this kind of reminds me of where we are with Y2K and this whole. Uh, I think the terminology will be the same five years from now, but I think the vernacular will have shifted into more of an execution-based mindset. And by that, what I mean is that. Analytics driven innovation is kind of a journey. So right now, if I look at this continuum, we're kind of like in this connect phase. Connect up all this data, figure out ways to transform it from a sophistication standpoint, and then only then can you start to reimagine what your business model is going to look like. I think right now we're in the connect phase. Um, Five years from now, I think there's going to be more people around the transformation and reimagination phase. In fact, some people are already embarking on that journey right now. Um, So really, from a future standpoint, reimagination will only take place, I think, in a few companies. Um, but again, some of the Y2K and the dot-com explosion, uh, people are still trying to figure out how to take advantage of this space. So five years from now, they'll have learned that. But only a couple of people will really kind of progress along that continuum towards reimagination.
1: Thank you. I like that word. We don't often think of that word in terms. It sounds like a very ephemeral ephemeral looking into the clouds and and imagining. I like that. Tony, quick question for the panel. I've got about 30 seconds extra I want to use here question is first Adam, then John, then Tony. Millennials entering the workforce, going into uh, any company that has to do with supply chain, any company that needs their input, their reimagination, them having grown up on cutting edge technology, cutting their teeth in technology when many of the rest of us were just trying to figure it out over the years. I hope I'm not giving away my age here. So will millennials make a difference in terms of what we're talking about today, Adam Zeckel? Operational excellence, advanced supply chain analytics, Will they get it faster than the rest of the workforce? Adam Zeckel, yes or no, millennials going to make a difference?
2: Yes. They, uh, I call it the light switch effect. I flip the switch, the light comes on. I don't need to know how or why. I just expect it to. And I think that's the expectation that uh, new people entering the workforce have.
1: Thank you. Very brilliant, I must say. Light bulb effect. I like that. John Sullivan, yes or no with millennials, going to make a big difference?
3: It's going to make a big difference. I'm going to build on that. You know, Edison said, "What five uh, percent of the people think, ten percent of the people think they think, and the other eighty-five people would rather die than think." Everybody on this call needs to be part of that five percent than think.
1: We are. I'll send the membership cards out after the show. Tony on millennials. Are you a millennial, Tony on?
4: I am not, but I like that last. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like that last analogy. Um, yeah, will it will make a difference? Absolutely. Um, And I talked to them, a lot of these folks in first and second year grad school, but, uh, and I tell them, I said, you know, you guys are really the future. Um, the way that how connected these folks are and how they're motivated and how they look at things is completely different than the way our generation. And I don't want to reveal too much, but how we grew up. And so I think, well, it makes a difference in the supply chain and the analytics, absolutely, because they bring to bear this, this new consciousness, this new set of awareness around what's possible, how to connect it, and how to leverage a lot of the disparate unstructured data that's already out there that hasn't taken advantage of before.
1: Thank you very much. Glad I sparked a good conversation here at the end. Appreciate that. Adam Zeckel. John Sullivan, Tony Hahn, thank you so much. Again, shout-out to Shane Ellis for putting together an extraordinary panel, and to Rick Ember for sponsoring this series. I think this is Episode 10 in our 2016 season. Woohoo! is. So I hope they'll be back for 10 more very interesting and provocative and timely episodes in 2017. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Thanks for listening. And here is my call to action. I'm getting around to it here. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Like Adam? Like Tony, like John, go out and be a game changer today. Have a good one. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to the Extended Supply Chain of the Future with Game Changers, presented by SAP, the best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.